The opinions expressed on this WebmasterRadio.fm program are those of the host, guests, and callers, and do not reflect those of the staff, management, or advertisers of WebmasterRadio.fm. Any rebroadcast or retransmission of this program without the express written consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. From the pinnacle of the media landscape, this is Market Edge. Join your host, Larry Weber, as he discovers the answers from analysts, entrepreneurs, and technologists who are preparing the blueprints for the future of marketing. Hear from those who are taking us to a new age of social media, e-communities, and the blogosphere. Blogosphere. Now, please welcome your host of Market Edge, Larry Weber. Hey, and welcome to Market Edge. I'm your host, Larry Weber, chairman of W2 Group, a global marketing services ecosystem organized to help chief marketing officers in their new role as builders of communities and content aggregators. Two W2 Group companies, Digital Influence Group and RacePoint Group, are leaders in social media marketing in both paid and unpaid media. I'm really excited today. We'll be talking about a lot of things, but most specifically some organizational change with David Weinberger, a senior researcher at the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard Law School and the co-author of the international acclaimed bestseller, The Clue Train Manifesto. A philosopher by training, David holds a Ph.D. from the University of Toronto. David is an active writer, speaker, blogger at Joho the Blog, and has authored several books in addition to Clue Train, such as Small Pieces Loosely Joined, and one of my favorites, Everything is Miscellaneous, The Power of the New Digital Disorder. As the founder of the one-person strategic marketing company, Evident Marketing, David has consulted to a wide variety of tech and innovative startup companies, including Intuit, Sun, Microsoft, and Yahoo. He was the senior Internet advisor to Howard Dean's 2004 presidential campaign and provided technology policy advice to John Edwards' 2008 presidential campaign. It's great to have you on Market Edge, David. Great to be here. Hey, tell us uh, a bit about your role, first of all, as a senior researcher at the Berkman Center for Internet Society. What what research are you currently working on, and what is Berkman doing these days? <laughs> right, uh, so it's, um, the Harvard Berkman Center, where I've been for six years, is a center of, uh, of research, um, some advocacy that uh, springs out of that research, um, engages in a pretty broad range of of projects. Um, most of them research based. Uh, everything from a group that's looking at digital natives, that is, how is the net different for those who are young, uh, to a bunch of internet and democracy projects, to um, uh, worrying about malware on the web and researching that to um, FCC broadband policy, a whole bunch of international research on, for example, what exactly does each country that filters the Internet for their citizens, what are they filtering out? So it's a broad range of uh, topics and of approaches. And what are you doing? Uh, so I participate informally in a bunch of them. Um, but primarily, I have been working on a book. Yeah. Um, and, and what's the book, you know, uh, that's going to be coming? When? What? You know, is, it this, is this the organizational book? 
Um, no, I'm afraid it may be another disorganizational book. Uh, right now, it's called Everything is Mis- Sorry, that was the previous book. <laughs> right now, it's called Too Big to Know. It's due in in the fall, and that means you know it's like a year until it comes out. So sometime in 2011. And the question that it worries about is or asks is. Um, what is the Internet doing to uh, experts and to expertise and to the broader question of what it means to know something and how we know things together and whether we can know things together anymore? Yeah, that's a great topic. I noticed that, uh, you know, um, our, one of our favorite Berkeley residents, Yaron Lanier, has one out called You Are Not a Gadget that's sort of trying, you know, a bit on that same tack. But uh, I know it's got some good reviews anyway on Amazon. Hey, it's it's been over a decade since the clue train, um, David, uh, and it's 95 theses on the misconceptions corporate leaders are applying to their customers. You know, in what way has your vision of, of change been realized since the original release of clue chain, and, and how do you see organizations changing over the course of the next decade? Well, I have no idea how they're going to change over the next decade. Um, uh, the um, so that that part's easy. Part B was easy. <laughs> <laughs> easy answer. Uh, part A is a little bit harder. Um, when the four of us wrote Clue Train in 1999, we thought that we were articulating what people on the web generally knew, but the media and business seemed not generally to know. Uh, which I always sum it up. I guess something like that. You know, the web is not simply a place for doing business, and business is very important on the web, and we all like it. Uh, nevertheless, we didn't go onto the web because we wanted to do better catalog shopping. We're happy to do it while we're there, but you know that's not what was driving people onto it and getting people so excited and enthusiastic about it. And it seemed to us back then, and I think we were pretty much right about this. But I think it was it, that is, it seemed to us back then that. Um, the web was exciting to people because uh, it was a social space where we got to talk with one another about what mattered to us. I mean, very simple. And everybody on the web knew that, but it seemed that most businesses and the media hadn't figured that out. And I think that was true, and uh, it's become more true. The barriers for um, expressing yourself on the web and connecting with other people and uh, conversing with them and building groups or just finding yourself in groups, all those barriers have gone way, way down uh, over the past 10 years. So we're doing more and more of what we went onto the web to do in the first place. Hey, you know, you know, I... I have to say, mostly because I'm a marketer, and we have lots of marketers, you know, in the in the audience for Market Edge. But um, as I've analyzed the web since you know the the very beginning, you know, I've I've noticed that you know marketing is is tried to really grab as much as it can on the web, and that be what it may. I start to see it impacting other categories very much, like. You know, human resources and recruitment. LinkedIn's getting a little more sophisticated finally. We're looking at new product development, customer service, and Twitter and the web. And, you know, it, do you see maybe just a little bit? I know you don't like to predict the future, but a, a little bit of, 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 of the social web now cutting across not just marketing, but other categories of, 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 of running businesses and running lives. Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, Clue Train talked about marketing because it's a particularly great example. But um, the book that came out in 2000, the site went up in 1999, the book has one chapter on marketing. 
um, we viewed the book as being um, about business far more broadly. Um, and one of my chapters, because we wrote individual chapters, so one of my chapters, in fact, was on the effect of the net on the internal organization of, of companies, what we you know call the intranet, I guess. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, <clears throat> pardon me. If I had a cough button, I would have pressed it. But um, we viewed it as being quite the book being uh, quite broad about business. And uh, in fact, I think if you asked the uh, all four of the authors individually, we would each say that we in fact view business as simply one example of the sorts of effects that the web is having. So, so absolutely, it's it's playing out um, all the way through businesses and across businesses and throughout culture. Have you seen companies, even if uh, over the past years, uh, that you would name that you think have really excelled in creating this sort of healthy open intranet to organize workers and share critical knowledge and, you know, some of the other things you talked about, like network conversations? Is there, is there specific companies that you would, you would highlight? You know, I'll mention a couple, but I'm, I'm always reluctant to do that um, for two reasons. First is I have a terrible memory. Uh, second is that smaller companies do that sort of thing routinely. It's much yeah. easier for them, and frequently, you know, their new companies and small companies are younger, and they have they just understand the spirit of what the web is doing. And, and um, but it's the big companies that uh, get the light shined on them, especially in my feeble memory. They're the ones I remember. So in some ways, it sort of skews attention away from where a lot of the activity is happening, where a lot of the changes are occurring, which is in the new and the small companies. Nevertheless, um, yeah, sure. I mean, just about every company has some good examples of how the web has altered and I think often usually improved life for customers, employees, and partners. Um, I mean, IBM is uh, in some ways a great example because they, in the previous era, they were the very example of the, of the suit-wearing, uh, good haircut sort of company where it was famous. It, it, it was a subject of humor that the IBM guys were always um, very disciplined and, and uh, professional and, you know, in the blue suits. IBM, over the past 10 years, uh, has done some remarkable things. I mean, they, they have pioneered this concept of the jam, um, which is a two- or three-day event online, variety of online tools and forums and the like, in which uh, everybody in the organization, everybody is encouraged to participate, to jump onto one of these forums or other, you know, other ways of communicating, to do so without regard to rank or hierarchy, and to talk about uh, the topic of the jam, which can be as broad as the first one was IBM's values. These have been extraordinarily um, useful to IBM. It's, they've generated uh, entire, entirely new lines of business from them, as well as having, I think, a very beneficial effect on um, uh, on how the company, how the people who work there feel about the company. And this is this is IBM, after all. So um, that's that's one sort of example. Lots of companies have. Um, started treating their customers with far more respect, far more open to uh, customer input, and recognize that, well, I'll go back to marketing in this case, that the most basic idea behind traditional marketing, and I say this as a, as a marketer, was before the Internet that the company knows more about the product or the services than the customers do. And that used to be obvious. Well, of course, the company knows more. And so the company could selectively release information in order to, um, oh, uh, control the market, 
um, to influence the market in some direction. But once the market can engage in conversations amongst itself, it turns out that market conversations are the best source of information quite frequently about the company's own products and services. And many, many companies have recognized that and are dealing with their customers in in a new way. And Microsoft is one example, um, enlisting the aid of customers as experts to help other customers with Microsoft products. SAP has been doing something very, very similar in the past few years with tremendous success. It not only offloads some of the customer support, it, it is a cultural, it's a deep cultural change about the relationship between the company and its customers. So many, many, many examples. It's hard to find companies that have resisted to the, the, the net uh, entirely, in fact. Would you go as far as to say that, you know, branding today is really becoming more and more a set of conversations that that companies, no matter the size, are having with their constituency base, and the better those conversations, the the better the brand standing is going to be? Yeah, no, I would go that far. Um, there's lots of, of traditional branding that companies can do, and they do uh, do using very traditional means, and those means are effective, um, but... Even before the net came along, there was a movement to recognize that brand is actually reputation, to go from brand management to reputation management, that there's only so much you can do to enforce your reputation, (laughs) enforce your brand, um, if your reputation doesn't uh, accord with the brand. And so um, trying to uh, build up and guard your reputation, one hopes by actually earning your reputation, that was around before the web. When the web came along, it became, I think, even more obvious that brand is uh, the brand is not something that a company can control entirely it's not that you can brand your customers with your mark anymore you probably never could but brand is going to be something that you're going to earn that it is reputation and that is going to be earned through uh, your the quality of your products and services and um, the quality of your customer service and most important how that is received and discussed by your your customers that's ultimately where it rests, which means that ultimately it is, to some degree, your brand and your reputation are, to some degree, out of your control. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, and we've talked about that with many of the, the leaders in shows past, and this convergence of reputation and brand and even influence uh, all seem to be a bit out of your control, and, and that's okay. We're going to take a short commercial break right now, but please stand by. We'll be right back with David Weinberger and more of the conversation on Market Edge. Market Edge will continue in just a moment. Anyway, I ask. That's right, ma'am. Anyway, you ask. Let me get this straight. If I wanted your CEO to deliver my check while juggling flaming machetes on the back of an Asian elephant, all I have to do is ask? Correct. With in-demand affiliates, you can tell us exactly how you want your payouts, and we will deliver. God, uh, could you hold on for a second? Someone's at the door. Wow, you weren't kidding. We are in demand. You can be too. Sign up today at the letter ndemandaffiliates.com. Did you know? 99designs is a leading marketplace for graphic design on the internet. Did you know? 99designs connects you to a community of over 35,000 designers who will compete to do the best work for you. Did you know? 99designs allows you to post projects for logo design, web page design, t-shirt design, and more. Did you know? 99designs projects the average of over 70 different design options for a price that you set. 99designs. When designers compete, you win. 
staying ahead of the curve to deliver the best online marketing solutions you need. That's what the JAR Group is all about. The JAR Group offers a full-service suite of marketing and managing solutions custom-tailored for affiliate search and social media. The JAR Group uses their resources and research to help meet and exceed the revenue expectations of each and every client. Find out how the JAR Group can work for you at thejargroup.com. That's thejargroup.com. The JAR Group, online marketing with measurable results. Mobile Presence, Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, or on demand anytime inside the Internet Marketing Channel, only on webmasterradio.fm. From the pinnacle of the marketing landscape, we now return to Market Edge. Once again, here's your host, Larry Weber. Welcome back to Market Edge. This is your host, Larry Weber, and I'm here today with David Weinberger, Senior Researcher at Harvard's Berkman Center for Internet and Society, co-author of the Clue Train Manifesto. We're talking about a variety of things, and... Uh, David's busy at work on his on a, on a new book that's going to be out, uh, I guess, next year sometime, David, and uh, and um, we all can't wait. Uh, you know, when you when you wrote with your co-authors, the Clue Train, the web was you know primarily a text-based medium, and in the ten years since, we've really seen a huge growth in in visual and video and you know rich media what impact has that had on the whole you know web society conversation that we're moving to a far more visual web uh, well I, man that's a hard question um the visual as it stands now frequently is a one-way communication you know because it's there's of course there's uh, sort of video back and forth um, Skype and the rest of it and that's that's important but um, the big cultural change has been the obviously has been the rise of videos that are produced and stuck up on the web the way you know, it's sort of a broadcast medium in that regard you, one person makes it lots of people see it and this is um, deeply upsetting the television ecology the traditional broadcast um, ecology and one of the, I think most interesting things around it is first of all we see this flowering of of uh, of folk art of various sorts and you know some of it is fantastic and beautiful and amazing and some of it is hilarious but you sort of you know it, it's not high culture it's just hilarious non-high culture and uh, I think that's amazing too and one of the most important things about it is that even when we have a traditional broadcast medium like video relatively hard to make one person makes it and sticks it up nevertheless as soon as you put it on the web it starts to gather conversation around it it gains uh, um, traction by being talked about it becomes um, viewed and an important part of the culture because people are linking to it pointing at it saying things about it you cannot do anything on the web even the most traditional form of broadcast without it becoming embedded in the real life of the web, which is conversational. Yeah, I I agree. You know, I not just the the visualization of the of, of the web, but you know, sort of the the search of the web. You know, I'm going out to speak at a Google thing on Thursday in Detroit, and how you know they're dealing with car makers and stuff. And I, I guess I'd love your opinion. 
as you study the phenomenon of Google and, and, and YouTube and, and what you think the sort of long-lasting impact and direction Google and search is really having on us? Oh, man. Well, first of all, I think it's added IQ points to the species. Um, the ability to uh, yeah, to get an answer, that's really important. I don't mean to downplay that at all, but that's only the beginning, the fact that you can ask a question and get an answer. The real thing is that you can go off in, in what looks like distraction, frequently is, um, around some topic and explore it in a way that you just never, ever could, um, which makes us not just smarter, but makes us uh, encourages our curiosity. And for many of us, I think that's what we count as being one of the absolute prime marks of intelligence, is being curious about the world. And so one of the messages that you get simply by being on the web is that the world is way, way, way more interesting than the broadcasters ever let on. You know, when we had back when, when I was a child and, and Larry, <clears throat> you were a child as well, and we had the three stations, and that was our view of the world. And it was, you know, interesting enough, but it was three stations. Now that we have the net, it turns out that the world is just vastly more interesting than, than could ever have been shown us on those three stations. There's one other thing I should mention, maybe, which is that um, when you use a search engine like Google, one of the things that we see is that there's much more that we don't see. We're aware of it. It's thrown into our face. We're told there are 10 million results for this, and we're only going to look at the top five or whatever, but, you know, typically. Uh, but we, at least we know that there, there is this vast um, web of a trillion pages that we are not exploring. And I actually think that makes a big difference because the old way that filters work, because we've always had to filter our world. There's always been too much to know. So we've always filtered it. But the old filters uh, in the physical world were, you know, like uh, you're on a library committee and you figure out which books you're going to take into the library. The library patrons don't see all of the books that you didn't accept. They're not there. They, you can't see them. And so you have this sense that the world is you know, fairly small, is sort of human-sized. But on the web, when we filter things at, say, Google, by searching for something, we see all the stuff that's not making it in. We see the tens of millions and billions of, of other pieces that are there. We know that they're there. And this changes our ideas about what it is possible for humans to know, how, how much there is and how unsettling it is for there to be that much that we'll never get to. Hey, um, you know, what was the conversations like, just picking up a little bit more on uh, on Google, there must have been some at least lunchtime conversations around the Berkman Center about Google and China. Uh, what what were some of the things that the Berkman Center was thinking about, and was it generally applauded that, uh, that Google stood up to a, a country of that size? Well, there actually was a lot of uh, discussion and some genuine experts there uh, on this topic, of which I am not. Um, Rebecca McKinnon uh, is, and um, it was – so I'll do the best I can to summarize, but it was controversial. Um, this, Google's action was taken, however, in the face of Yahoo's um, stance on China, uh, which had gotten Yahoo in trouble, I think deservedly. Um, Yahoo basically turned over names of dissidents um, to the Chinese uh, based on you know, the, the email of, of Chinese dissidents that had gone through the Yahoo servers. And it was in response to that that Google, for, Google formulated its own policy uh, initially to engage with China. 
Um, and compared to Yahoo's uh, stance, I think China, uh, Google's stance was was far better, and I think uh, a defensible and reasonable one. I'm speaking for myself now, of course. Um, Google's more recent decision to um, to declare that experiment over. Um, it's hard to see how that isn't an admirable decision. Um, I think it's a tough decision. Um, but Google seems to have been acting against its own financial interests, um, at least to some degree. I know that's an arguable point. Um, so the center does not have an official position on it. It is a subject of a great deal of, of discussion. And in addition, simply the topic of what the net looks like in um, other countries, uh, especially in China, which is a particularly important country, obviously, uh, that topic has, uh, the center has spent a fair bit of time on, and it's actually quite fascinating. Yeah, and, it, it, you know, it's so important. We've discussed on this show before the importance of moral purpose for companies and how the the web, whether companies like it or not, is going to force a transparency around moral purpose and, you know, that you're going to have to put things above making money all the time, you know, sometimes. Not to sound like, you know, I'm from the 60s, but, uh, you know. I, but you are. But I <laughs> As am I. Uh, no, I, I agree with you, but I, let me just point to one thing about Google. So, um, which is, this particular example, which is, yes, absolutely, I agree with you that moral purpose counts for a lot. Um, the Google example in China since um, is instructive, though, because here's a company that seems to have been acting on the basis of, of moral purpose, but even whether it was or not was controversial. Not everybody agreed that it was done for moral reasons. Um, and we're probably not all going to agree. So it, it becomes a burden on, on, or an obligation, moral obligation of the company to um, act morally, to behave well, but it should recognize that when it does so, it may not even always get full credit for doing so. Hey, a couple of questions back to the sort of the human company and, and uh, some of your expertise. What, what new skills or attributes do you think companies need right now in order to make, you know, real change happen in their organizations? You know, I, I tend to think about this um, as being a problem. So I'll just spin this slightly. Um, not, a, not so much a problem of skills as a problem of culture. Um, because the skills are, you know, typing is really important, obviously, I mean, to have people who can type really well, but um, <laughs> and be able to uh, carry on a human conversation without being a complete jerk. And the technical—I won't use the technical word for it, but it's, you know, it's—we'll uh, just call them jerks. Um, that's a sort of skill, but it's also, uh, you know, just a personality type. Um, I think the hardest thing, far harder than developing those skills, is developing the culture which allows people to use those those skills, um, because a lot of it goes against uh, what companies have, what they're familiar with, how they've evaluated people in the past, what they their, their values, what they the values of professionalism, for example. A lot. If you take somebody who, say, 20 years ago was the exemplar of professionalism, a totally admirable person because she's so professional, and you put her on on the web unaltered to engage in the you know the conversations, that person quite likely is going to come across uh, as you know, sort of a stick in the mud. And, and so when the professional organization looks at what web conversations and web relationships, in fact, look like, they can look to the professional 
to be unprofessional and and uh, embarrassing and uh, uh, dragging down the good name of the company and all the rest of it. When in fact, it's probably the other way. So it's the, the question of culture is uh, the real barrier. I think the the skills are. The skills for succeeding here, there are plenty of them, uh, plenty of them around in the organization already. Um, the culture is getting in the way, typically, of letting those skills be deployed. Is it silly? You know, over the last 20 years, it's been interesting to watch. You know, when we had too many computers being bought, we had a, a, a chief technical officer. When we had too much software being bought, we have chief information officers. Are we moving to a point where, you know, we have chief uh, listening officers or chief culture officers or chief community officers, or is that going too far? <laughs> There's, there are reasons not to um, have that position, and especially under that name, because it's bound to breed some cynicism. Um, you can control technology. Uh, you can have somebody who makes decisions about it in the tree that goes up the hierarchy, um, you know, a, a hierarchy that leads to a single person making decisions, whereas culture is more or less exactly the opposite. It, it's not something that you can uh, hand off to one person and think that that person is now going to be responsible for culture. It just, you know, it just doesn't work that way. People can make contributions. They can be full-time trying to uh, bring about cultural change. All that's great. Um, having a, somebody with that particular title, I think, is, um, well, you never know. Uh, my initial reaction would be maybe, maybe not so much worry about uh, forcing cultural change through hierarchical organization by using the hierarchical organization, since so much of the cultural change means getting away from the bad parts of hierarchical organizations. I mean, the world is flat, you know. Hey, you know, you're, you're, you're part of the Harvard Law School, really, there. You know, uh, we're hearing a lot of interest come out that, you know, law is really behind the times as far as, you know, where the web's going. You know, what policies and, and laws do you think are, are needed, and are we going to see some, some things come out of, the, uh, out of Berkman that are going to, you know, help us continue to innovate and thrive, you know, in a, in a world that probably needs to address new legal issues and, and uh, you know, intellectual property issues. Okay, so I'm not a lawyer. Let's start with that. Um, and just as a, a small note, the, the center got moved to being a general Harvard center, but still it's, it was, comes, you're absolutely right, comes out of the law school, uh, this happened last year, comes out of the law school 11 years ago, it's still very heavily, uh, it's got a whole bunch of Harvard lawyers in it, as well as many others. Uh, there's continuing interest in, obviously, in legal questions. There are bunches of people who are working on um, copyright and IP questions, uh, for example. Um, there was work done for 40, uh, an association of 49 of the attorneys general for the states about um, assessing the actual risks to children and what sorts of laws ought to come out of that. Uh, so, yeah, there's a, a lot of interest. I, um, I find the copyright stuff to be to be fascinating uh, as a non-lawyer. Um, it is, that is clearly one place where the law is so far behind the reality of the new the new medium that we have, um, and where the law is, my, again, speaking for myself, not a lawyer, um, where the, the law is getting in the way, in a, in a very frustrating way, of the sort of 
change. We, we could be having a renaissance now. We could we could have a renaissance like that would make the the previous renaissance you know look like a ball game. This is this could be um, way bigger than it even is. But a set of laws that were designed for a period of scarcity, you know, books are in paper relatively scarce, are getting in the way, and they they need to be redone, not thrown out. I couldn't agree with you more on that one. I mean, uh, the whole opportunity for a huge business renaissance and also human renaissance is really right there for the taking. Hey, we're running out of time. I would like to ask you one more question, David. And I know you don't, again, like to predict futures, but, you know, in the last 10 years since uh, you you guys wrote the famous uh, clue train, you know, we've seen, you know, Facebook, Twitter, now Foursquare. We're seeing all these... uh, very impactful web uh, entities uh, happen upon us. Are we going to move to the next five, ten years of just refining those, or are there going to be newer, bigger brands even than those that have just come out the last ten years? It would be, um, I think it would be foolish to think that, no, this is it, this is the set. We got them now, and now it's just a matter of, no, stuff will happen. This is the the, the net is the greatest medium for innovation ever in human history, with the possible exception of writing. Um, there's never the ability of, of people to. Um, I mean, for like this, this is the first time we've had a medium that is a medium is the medium for uh, information. It's the medium for communication, and it's the medium for being social together. We've never had a medium that combined those three. The openness of this medium, presuming our laws and economics keep the Internet open, which is at risk, but assuming that it does, uh, means that we are able to um, engage with one another so freely, up and down, in small groups and large groups, for money, for, for free, that it is the greatest medium of innovation for innovation ever. And so it would be foolish to think, nope, we're done innovating, that's it. You know, it, it's, it's settled. It's not. It's not settled at all. David Weinberger, Senior Researcher at Harvard's Berkman Center for Internet and Society, co-author of the Clue Chain Manifesto. Thanks for talking to us today, and thanks most importantly for the great work you're doing and contributing to our society. That's so nice of you. Thank you. And thanks everyone in the audience for listening to today's conversation. This is Larry Weber. Be sure to visit us at webmasterradio.fm at 12 noon Eastern Time on Tuesdays to hear the new episodes of Market Edge. For now, bye-bye. 